Okay, welcome everyone. Um, sorry, we're getting a little bit of a late start. Um, this is the roundtable on religion, race, and the 2016 elections. Um, it is sponsored by the Public Understanding of Religion Committee, which is a committee of the uh, board of the AAR, and the Status of Racial and Ethnic Minorities in the Profession Committee, which is another committee of the board, and finally the Religion and Politics section. I'm Serene Jones, I'm presiding, and just to remind you, uh, this session is organized as a roundtable discussion between these amazing authors of recent major books that address the issues of religion, race, and politics. Additionally, all of these offers have been frequent public comment commentators on the 2016 election. Uh, they have a lot of insight and experiences to share about the election cycle itself and about its outcome. Pause there. Um, um, with the aim of helping us understand how to move forward, particularly around issues of white evangelical Protestant support for Donald Trump over Ted Cruz, uh, the role of anti-immigration and anti-Muslim rhetoric, uh, the role that the Black Lives Matters movement played in this, and the impact of changing demographics of the electorate. And then to pull it together, the prospects and resources for coming together after a political season that promises to be one of the most polarizing and divisive in the modern era. So we have amazing panelists with us and I'm going to introduce them all in alphabetical order, but they will not be speaking in alphabetical order. Um, so I will begin with Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, who is the Susan D. Morgan Distinguished Professor of Religion at Goucher College in Baltimore and is the canon theologian at the Washington National Cathedral, a place that's been very much engaged in responding politically and theologically to this. Kelly is considered a leader in the field of womanist theology, racial reconciliation and sexuality, and the black church. She holds degrees from Denison University and obtained her PhD from Union Theological Seminary. Her newest book, which we have had her speak on at Union, a uh, remarkable book, I commend it to you, is Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, released in May of 2015 by Orbis. Next we have Stephen Protho. Um, Prothero, who is professor of religion at Boston University, specializing in American religions. He received his BA from Yale College in American Studies and his MA and PhD from Harvard University in the study of religion. He is a historian of American religions um, about which he has written six books, including The White Buddhist, The Asian Odyssey of Henry Steele Alcott, which won the Best Book Award of the American Academy of Religion in 1997. He wrote The American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. Boy, these are pertinent to our, mo our present moment, which was named the top religion book in 2003. And his two most recent projects are the New York Times bestsellers, uh, Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't, and uh, God Is Not One the eight rival religions that run the world and why their differences matter. 
thirdly, we have with us Jim Wallace, who is a New York Times bestseller, public theologian, speaker, international commentator on ethics and public life, um, who's already been day after day um, on uh, the, the magazine and the webpage of Sojourners, speaking out about where we are and what we should be doing. He recently served as a White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships and was former Vice President and currently serves on the Global Agenda Council on the Values of the World Economic Forum. He's the author of 12 books. His most recent is America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America, which was released in 2016. Some of his other books include On God's Side, What Religion Forgets and Politics Hasn't Learned About Serving the Common Good, Rediscovering Your Values, A Guide for Economic and Moral Recovery, The Great Awakening, Reviving Faith in Politics in a Post-Religious Right America, and God's Politics, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. He is president and founder of Sojourners, where he is also editor-in-chief of Sojourners Magazine, he uh, was raised in a Midwest evangelical family um, and talks about how, as a teenager, it was his questions about racial segregation in his own church and community that led him to black churches and neighborhoods of the inner city in Detroit. Um, he founded Sojourners while a student at Trinity Evangelical School in Illinois. And finally, uh, we have as a speaker, uh, Robbie P. Jones of the Public Religions and Research Institute, um, who again has been out there on the front already writing and speaking about the space we find ourselves in. He is author of The End of White Christian America and two other books and numerous peer review articles on religion and public policy. He writes a column for The Atlantic online on politics and culture, and he appears regularly in Faith by the Numbers, um, a segment on Interfaith Voices, the nation's leading religion news magazine on public radio. He is frequently featured in national media such as CNN, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post. He serves as co-chair of the National Steering Committee for Religion and Politics section of the American Academy of Religion and is a member of the editorial boards for the Journal of the American Academy of Religion and for the Politics and Religion section. He's also a member of the American Sociological Association, the Society for the Scientific Understanding of Religion, and the American Association of Public Opinion and Research. Oh my gosh, how do you do all of those different uh, organizations? Uh, he holds a PhD in religion from Emory, where he specialized in sociology of religion, politics, and ethics. He holds an MDiv from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and in 2013, he was selected by Emory's Graduate Division of Religion as the Distinguished Alumni of the Year. Uh, before founding PRRI, Dr. Jones worked as a consultant and senior research fellow at think tanks in Washington and was an assistant professor of religious studies at Missouri State University. So quite uh, an amazing group of people that we have gathered here to hear their thoughts and reflections their guidance on what has happened and what will happen as we move forward. And we were very uh, lucky today to have with us um, Professor Andrea White, who uh, is Professor of Theology and Culture at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Um, and we're very happy that Andrea, um, who is uh, the leader of 
of a number of uh, major sections and groups in the AAR. And as Andrea pulled this list together for me in her typical humble way, she left out an introduction of herself. Um, so Andrea. <laughs> but we are very happy to have her um, at the end of this responding to all of the presentations and then opening it for discussion. So thank you all for being here. And I will turn it over to uh, Robbie to go first, then we'll hear from Kelly, then Steve, and then finally from Jim. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm going to uh, take a little bit of time to think about what, what the bigger trends are, to kind of step back uh, from this election, this uh, momentous election that we were all still, I think, trying to wrap our heads around. Uh, it was such a surprise uh, from uh, everyone's point of view, including the winner's uh, point of view this year. Um, and uh, I think trying to figure out what, what happened and what does it mean I think in the larger sweep of things. So what I hopefully what I'm going to do is draw on some uh, things from the analysis from my book and the broader sweep of um, demographic and cultural change in the country. Uh, and um, you know I've get, been getting a little bit of snarky comments on Twitter and stuff about hey the end of white Christian America, eh? Um, you know in the wake of the elections. Um, uh, but but I, what I want to the case I'm going to make is that in fact this election is an expression of. Uh, the end of white Christian America, right, and not a contradiction uh, to uh, the end of, end of white Christian America. And I'll explain what I mean by that as, as we go. Um, but the first thing I think to, oh, I want to go back to this actually. Um, I'm going to start with this, this photo here, which you can mostly make out, um, and we're heading toward Thanksgiving. I received this at the top of an email uh, from the Christian Coalition of America in 2012, about this time after Barack Obama's re-election uh, in, in 2012. It was at the top of the email, and under the email it said, Christian Family at Prayer, Pennsylvania, 1942. Right, um, and I thought it was a little bit odd to get this email right after the re-election of our first African American president with this kind of white family at prayer. Uh, but then the more I read, uh, the more I realized uh, it was very, very intentional. This was a, an image of America, right? A sort of idealized white Christian America that was sort of reasserting itself in the wake of uh, uh, the president's election. And then I read down, and I read this. Uh, what it said, uh, the, the line said this, and I think you'll, you'll recognize kind of the language right under this photo. Uh, the Christian Coalition of America email said this, we will soon be celebrating the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving, and God has still not withheld his blessings upon this nation, although we now richly deserve such condemnation. We have a lot to give thanks for, but we also need to pray to our Heavenly Father and ask him to protect us from those enemies outside and within who want to see America destroyed. All right, that's the text under this photo uh, this time uh, four years ago. And I sort of saved it and kind of something like odd right, is happening here. Um, and you know, what I, what I um, kind of unpack in the book and, and what I think is relevant to, for today um, is that um, we are really seeing demographically, culturally, the end of the dominance of this world. And it is the threat of the end of the dominance of this world of white Christian America that I think has fueled many of the dynamics um, in this debate. If I only had sort of one uh, set of data to, to show you here, or like one slide, I would sort of put this one up. Um, I'm going to show you two things on this slide. So this first one is the percent of Americans who identify as white, non-Hispanic, and Christian from 2004 to 2016. 
Um, and then I've shaded in this, this uh, sort of the last eight years of Obama's presidency uh, here so that you can see just how much change has taken place just during uh, President um, Obama's uh, tenure here. So, uh, you know, when President Obama was running for president in 2008, 54% of the country identified as white and Christian. That number today is 43%. Uh, so we've gone just during uh, the last two election cycles from uh, being a majority white Christian nation to a minority uh, white Christian nation. And then the other thing I'll put up here is actually just kind of a bellwether cultural um, issue, and that is support for same-sex marriage, right? An issue that the conservative Christian movement was all in. Uh, really opposing from the beginning. And what you'll see again is that, again, uh, 2008, uh, only four in 10 Americans uh, supported same-sex marriage. That number today is six in 10. Uh, so we have, again, moved here. And these, these lines have basically crossed uh, during Obama's uh, presidency. So if you think about, uh, you know, being, uh, so I, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist in Mississippi, being a conservative white Christian in the country, this is a head-spinning amount of change um, in a short amount of time, right? Moving from being majority, uh, kind of culturally, majority uh, demographically, to being a minority in both, uh, both cases. And I think it's this sense of anxiety that's setting off um, a lot of the reactions that we're seeing. Um, one way of kind of really seeing this starkly is to look at the percentage of Americans who identify as white and Christian by generational uh, cohort. So if you kind of think about this chart as a kind of archaeological dig down through generational strata uh, here, and this is what uh, the percentage of Americans in each cohort who identify as white and Christian look like. So you can see, again, just among Americans who are alive today, this is an amazing amount of change just over a few generations' time. We've gone from being essentially uh, seniors are two-thirds white and Christian. Uh, millennials under the age of, 20, of 30 are only 22 percent. Uh, white and Christian. Um, so uh, about a factor of three uh, is, is how this has changed over time. Uh, and you can also see, if you look at other uh, groups here, non-white uh, Christians growing uh, dramatically, the re religiously unaffiliated growing uh, dramatically. Um, uh, and, and this has all like really changed the landscape. At the ballot box, um, and this is one of the kind of interesting things, that is what's happening in the general population. It is also still happening at the ballot box. This is exit poll numbers, the percentage of white Christians in the exit polls uh, from 1992 to the present. The one thing you'll see, though, is that it takes a little bit longer for these demographic changes to hit the ballot box. Uh, the ballot box acts as a bit of a time machine uh, in a way to kind of take us back about uh, two election cycles from where the general population uh, is. Uh, but it, it's still, the trends are exactly the same. It's just that uh, because white Christians tend to turn out at higher rates, and they certainly did in this election, uh, it tends to mute uh, the effect or delay the effect of generational, of, of these demographic changes in the population. It takes a couple of while for them to trickle down. Even so, uh, 2024 will be, so two election cycles ahead will be the first election where we have a minority of white Christians in the electorate. Uh, if, if current trends uh, continue. So we're still not that far, that far off, and we're just kind of at that tipping point um, right now. Um, one thing that I think will help uh, see just how this is happening, that the sort of over-representation in the electorate from where things are in the general election, is if I sure to show you, uh, just take white evangelical Protestants, uh, right, and look at the percent they are in the population. This is 2008, 2012, uh, 2016. Uh, they have declined from being 21% of the population to 17% of the population over the last two election cycles, but they have remained 26% of voters uh, during this time, right? So uh, in, they've always been overrepresented at the ballot box, uh, but in 2008, there were only five percentage points overrepresented at the ballot box 
uh, in the last election, they were nearly 10 percentage points, not, they were nine, nine percentage points overrepresented um, at the ballot box compared to their presence. Um, so that's kind of one of the, like, how does this happen? By kind of overrepresentation at the ballot box. Um, when voting takes place. Uh, one other thing that we saw um, this, this election cycle, I'll put this map up here. Um, this is not a red and blue election map. Um, this is a map showing the, the density of white Christians in each state. Um, and the reds are, um, the dark red is over 60%, the light red is over 50%, and then the, the, the grays are under 50%. One of the things you'll see here is um, this goes a long way toward explaining, in fact, it's highly correlated with states that Trump won. Um, and particularly up in the upper Rust Belt, I think we don't tend to think about the Rust Belt. A lot of times you say white Christian, you think about the South. But if you look at that upper Rust Belt, right, it's Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, uh, and then the Appalachian range of Kentucky and West Virginia that has the kind of um, higher representation. And we have did a little scatter plot after the election just so you can see how all this lines up. And basically what you see is if you only plot the, the density of white Christians by state in the country and Trump support, it correlates very, very highly. In fact, there's a higher correlation between white Christian density than there is between white working class uh, density um, in the country. It actually explains a little bit more of Trump support than, uh, than, than, than actually class alone. Um, the other thing to say here is that um, the, the, voting, uh, the voting patterns in the religious landscape have been remarkably stable since Reagan. Right? We got the big shakeup and realignment when white Southern Christians shifted from being Democrats to being Republicans, largely in response to civil rights uh, in the 1980s. That's where we get the current landscape that we have today. If we go back, this is 2004, 8, 12, and 16, you can see there's almost no difference uh, in, in those, and I'm going to put up 16 here. We don't have all the groups yet from the exit polls, but the ones we have, um, I've put up here. I think one of the more remarkable things to say, and, and I think this is really important, is I, I don't think we should overinterpret what happened in this election. This election looks remarkably like what happened in 2012 and in 2008 and in 2004. Um, it changed just enough in just the right places to flip. Uh, some things, but it's not a sea change. It's not uh, the the basic patterns are still here. You know, we had um, and 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 the one thing to point out here, the pattern I'm gonna, as I'm taking this home. The one thing I want you to note, though, is there is this absolute divide between white Christians in the country and basically everybody else. Um, that is the divide in the religious landscape. Um, and I think you know, if you're a theologian, that presents certainly uh, some thorny theological problems, right? So, but as, as I'm going to go through some slides, what you'll notice is these three groups, white evangelical Protestants, white Catholics, and yes, white mainline Protestants, uh, all line up, typically leaning toward Republican uh, candidates uh, all, the, all the way through. Um, you know, if you want to give white mainline Protestants something, you would give them consistency. They are 44, 44, 44 um, in, this, uh, in this lineup. But, you know, white evangelicals, um, you know, here it's a little bit of a low mark, but, you know, it looks about the same. Uh, I'll pull up white evangelicals and white Catholics flip the other way. This is Republican support from the exit polls uh, this year. And you'll see that, you know, Trump basically got exactly the same support, uh, statistically speaking. He did set technically a new high water mark because he broke 80% and went to 81%. Uh, and the exit polls, George W. Bush got 78. Um, uh, but it, again, it looks fairly the same. White Catholics, about 6 and 10. We don't have white mainline Protestants from the exit polls, but we're going to expect that they're going to be about 55 or 56 based on uh, everything else for Trump um, uh, in this election cycle, So, which is pretty consistent with where they were in previous elections as well. 
Um, so the last thing, just to kind of take this home, uh, remember these patterns of white evangelicals, white mainline Protestants, white Catholics. I'm just going to put up a few issues here, and I'm going to go quickly um, so we make sure we leave enough time. But uh, just on the basic question, do newcomers to the country represent a threat or a strength? White Christian groups, whether you're evangelical, mainline, or Catholic, uh, majority say these groups are a threat. Everybody else in the religious landscape is conflicted. African-American Protestants are conflicted, but Hispanic Catholics, the religiously unaffiliated, and those who are members of non-Christian religions all strongly saying, no, they strengthen uh, the country. Uh, same pattern here. Do you favor opposed temporarily banning Muslims for other, from other countries in the U.S.? Uh, majority, strong majority support from white evangelicals, majority support for white mainline Protestants, uh, white Catholics uh, basically divided, and then everybody else uh, saying they oppose um, this policy um, in the religious landscape. Police officers generally treat blacks and other minorities the same as whites. Um, uh, agree or disagree? Uh, look at white, white evangelicals, three-quarters agree. 70% uh, white Catholics agree. Two-thirds uh, white mainline Protestants agree. Everybody else? disagree. And then finally, this question, which I think explains, I, I, in my mind, explains a lot about um, the election. We, we, at PRI, we basically characterize this election as a kind of nostalgia, a, a referendum on a white nostalgia, uh, and this kind of choice between a kind of 1950s vision of America and a 2050 uh, vision of America is like one way of kind of capturing this, uh, I think, the dynamics in the election in, in, uh, in a snapshot. But we, had, we asked this question, do you, in, since the 1950s, do you think American culture and way of life has mostly changed for the better or mostly changed for the worse? I've got a bunch of groups up here, not just religious groups, but again, and this one's a little backwards, you have to read it right to left to get the same patterns, but white evangelical Protestants, only 25% say things have changed for the better uh, since the 1950s. Uh, white working class Americans, only about a third. White Catholics, only four in 10. White mainline, only four in 10. And then you go to the other side, and it's the religiously unaffiliated, Hispanic Catholics, African Americans, um, Hispanics as a whole, all saying things have changed for the better. Um, and it's just a big divide. The country is basically divided right down the middle um, on this question uh, with groups sorting uh, pretty strongly uh, one way or the other based on their, their take. So all that to say is that, um, uh, you know, one of the things I think here, we're at a religion conference, I think the, the racial divide, uh, the thing that has stayed with me after the research of the book is that the racial divide through churches and through Christianity in particular um, is just astonishing. Uh, to me, it is you know it sorts people just reliably. It doesn't matter what issue you're looking at, voting patterns, added, and anything that's about cultural change. Um, it just sorts people, white Christians over here, everybody else over there. And I think that dynamic is going to be one of the biggest challenges we have to deal with um, going going forward. So I'll stop there. Good morning. I will offer a few brief remarks on Trump and the truth about America. How did it happen? How has a man whose campaign was filled with racist, xenophobic, and misogynistic vitriol, and who mounted a racialized birtherism campaign against the nation's first African-American president, as well as promised law and order, wall-building protectionist policies. 
How has this man been elected president in a country that proclaims life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all? Donald Trump's chauvinistic campaign tapped into more than the disillusionment and resentment of people who have felt ignored, if not betrayed, by the political establishment. He most significantly tapped into America's defining Anglo-Saxon myth while dangerously revitalizing the culture of whiteness that serves to protect it. Let me say something about that myth. When America's pilgrim and Puritan forebears fled England in search of freedom, they believed themselves descendants of an ancient Anglo-Saxon people who possessed high moral values and an instinctive love for freedom. These early Americans crossed the Atlantic with a vision to build a nation that was politically, culturally, if not demographically, true to their exceptional Anglo-Saxon heritage. This was a vision soon to be shared by this nation's founding fathers, such as Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. In order to safeguard this vision, a pervasive culture of whiteness was born. Within this culture, to be white was to be considered Anglo-Saxon enough. Hence, to be white was to be privileged to enter certain spaces and to claim certain rights, what W.E.B. Du Bois might call the wages of whiteness. Put simply, whiteness became essentially the passport into the exceptional space that was American identity, as defined by the Anglo-Saxon myth. From its earliest beginnings, therefore, America's social, political, and cultural identity was inextricably linked to the myth of Anglo-Saxon superiority. The city on the hill that the early Americans were building was intended to be nothing less than a testament to Anglo-Saxon chauvinism. There's simply no getting around it. The myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism is shaped and continues to shape America's sense of self. It is in the very DNA of this country. America's exceptionalism is Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. This is the insidious narrative that Donald Trump tamped into with his call to make America great again and why many African-Americans, Latino, Latina, and other persons of color have had a visceral reaction to this very slogan. Even when unspoken, America's greatness has been defined by a myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism that determines who is a real American, that is, who is entitled to the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and therefore, who has the right to cross boundaries and borders, and who has the right to be president. And so what happened on election night, while alarming, is not an American anomaly. It is as American as apple pie. For it happened following emancipation reconstruction with black codes, Jim Crow, and, Ku Klux, and the Ku Klux Klan. It happened after the Civil Rights Movement with Nixon's law and order agenda and the race-defined war on drugs. And so it was predictable that it would happen again following eight years of a black man as president. Whiteness has once again stood its ground in order to protect America's Anglo-Saxon mythic self 
with law and order rhetoric and wall building promises. And so, how did Donald Trump become president-elect? By unearthing and revitalizing a truth about America that resonated with far too many of its citizens. This includes, as Robbie has pointed out, and according to Pew Research, Pew Research says 58% of white Protestants, 60% of white Catholics, and 81% of white evangelicals. The point of the matter is, Trump dared to do that which even Governor Romney and Senator McCain refused to do in their bids for the presidency, to play into the white supremacist narrative that is the insidious side of America's identity, even when they had the opportunity to do so. For who could forget when Senator McCain quieted the bigoted shouts during one of his campaign rallies by proclaiming then-candidate Obama, quote, a decent family man and citizen who he admired and respected while making clear that although they disagreed on various policies, no one, McCain said at that time, should fear Obama becoming president. Instead of rejecting notions of white supremacy, Donald Trump fostered them with his Make America Great Again campaign. And this leads us to another troubling aspect of Donald Trump's campaign that America's narrative of white supremacy makes possible. And that is the campaign's fascist narrative. Is Donald Trump a fascist has been the question asked by many. Of course, he and his followers would protest that label as loudly as they have protested, the label of bigot, misogynist, racist, or anti-Semite. The point of the matter is that Trump's campaign bears the marks of all these labels, and so far his presidency promises to do the same. But back to my point. Inasmuch as America is defined by a notion of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, then it has provided the perfect soil for a fascist regime to emerge. For in order for fascism to take root, it depends upon, as historian Isaac Chutner has said, uses of ethnic stereotypes, exploitation of fear for foreigners, at the same time that it must create a narrative, even if it's a false narrative, about national decline. This, of course, sounds like it was right out of Trump's Make America Great Again playbook. A playbook made way too easy because of America's sense of exceptionalism that sets up a natural enemy, those who are non-white hence not Americans, and suggest that those very persons are the reason for America's decline. And so again, Trump's, Trump's campaign simply exploited that which is in America's <laughs> a Freudian slip. <laughs> I tried to play it off. But when you're looking down here at Cheryl Jilton, Susan Thistlewaite laughing, you gotta, you gotta stop. But again, Trump's campaign simply exploited that which is in America's the very DNA. And so the question is now what? In 1961, James Baldwin declared, the time has come, he says, God knows, 
for us to examine ourselves. But we can do this only if we are willing to free ourselves of the myth of America and try to find out what is really happening here." End quote. We continue to arrive at these moments of white chauvinistic backlash because of America's inability to face the hard truths of its own story and thus determine if it really wants to free itself from its Anglo-Saxon myth. To do so requires more than hand-wringing and apologies. It requires calling out the ways in which our socioeconomic policies, laws, systems, structures, and criminal justice system privilege whiteness. And thus, it requires refusing to be silent until they are dismantled. It, it requires resisting at every level of our society any efforts to reinstate 21st century versions of Jim Crow laws like stop and frisk or poll taxes like voter IDs or McCarthyism with the House Un-American committees. It requires us calling out racism and xenophobia for what it is, even when it masks itself in the politically correct language of greatness. And it requires the faith community to take the lead. If indeed faith is about partnering with God to help mend the world, then faith communities have no choice. They are compelled to discern the very movement of God in the world, which is always a movement toward freedom from anything, I mean anything, that would prevent any person that has breath from living into the fullness of their sacred created being. This means that faith communities must be in the forefront of calling a halt to the systemic, structural, and cultural violence that is whiteness, like inadequate housing, inadequate schools, job opportunities, recreational opportunities, poverty, the violence that traps people of color in the crucifying realities of death. However, in order to do that, faith communities must free themselves of their own cultural whiteness, which clearly trumped their very faith in this election. There are those who have advised that we should take a breath and give Donald Trump a chance to see what he will do as president. My friends, it is not a matter of what Donald Trump will do. It is about what he has already done. He has unmasked a disturbing truth about America. The time has come for us to decide what we want to do about that. Thank you. Thank you uh, to the conveners for including me on this panel of distinguished scholars and activists. Um, no thanks for asking me to go third after that. <laughs> Thank you all for coming and sitting uh, in this bizarre, very bizarre space.
My friend uh, Najiba Saeed shared with me a couple days ago that she was going to miss a Muslim voice on this panel, and I, I miss that voice too. I hope that future panels on race and religion and living in the era of Trump will include Muslim voices. My goal today is to refract the themes of this panel through my book on the history of the culture wars, which is called Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars Even When They Lose Elections, and then to conclude with a few observations about hope. There was much talk in the run-up to this election about how the culture wars are over. Trump isn't interested in abortion or gay marriage, therefore he is a post-culture war candidate, and this was a post-culture war election. This is incorrect, based on a false understanding of the nature and history of America's culture wars and of American society itself. In my book, I define culture wars as angry and even violent public disputes over seemingly non-negotiable moral and religious questions that address the meaning of America and who is and who is not a true American. I then look at five episodes among many in American history the elections of 1796 and 1800 fought to a great extent over Jefferson's unorthodox religion, anti-Catholicism uh, in the early 19th century, anti-Mormonism before and after the Civil War, prohibition and repeal in the 20s and 30s, and the contemporary culture wars beginning in the late 1970s, including the wars on Islam that we're living with today. Based on these case studies, I then argue that culture wars recur throughout American history, that they are only infrequently about sexuality. In fact, even the contemporary culture wars, which we tend to identify with abortion and same-sex marriage, began with a dispute, as Randall Bomber and others have argued, about race, the decision by President Carter's IRS chief in 1978 to strip segregation academies of their tax-exempt status. And I argue as well that culture wars are almost always about inclusion and exclusion, multiculturalism versus monoculturalism. Who are we? Who is to be part of us? Can Thomas Jefferson be president with those unorthodox religious views? Can Mormons sit in the US Senate? Are Catholics and Muslims true Americans, are gays and lesbians. In this sense, Trump is a quintessential culture warrior. He revives old tropes used against Catholics and Mormons, that their religion is unchristian, that they are immoral, and that they are un-American, a danger, in fact, to American society, and redeploys them against Muslims, Mexicans, African Americans, and others. As the title of my book suggests, I also observe that conservatives almost always start the culture wars and liberals almost always win them. Gays and, and lesbians get marriage. An infidel and a papist gets the White House. Mormons become quintessential Americans, which is to say reality TV stars, winners even of American Idol and Dancing with the Stars. So why do conservatives keep going back to this well? Why do they keep picking fights they cannot win? Because cultural warfare works, because it creates coalitions rooted in deep emotions of loss and longing and belonging. Because as we saw on November 8th, the culture wars win elections. 
Like conservatism itself, culture wars begin with an anxiety over forms of life that are passing away. This anxiety about the passing away of the patriarchal family or of white supremacy or of Protestant or white Christian America, as Robbie Jones puts it, is then expressed in three ways. First, as a narrower complaint about a specific fact or public policy, a black man in the White House, illegal immigration. Second, as a broader lament about how badly the nation has fallen from its founding glory and how desperate it is in need of deliverance. We were Eden, we fell, but we will be great again. Third, as an angry attack on the group held responsible for this outrage. This movement from anxiety to outrage works best with causes that are well on their way to being lost. In this sense, culture wars participate in and fuel the logic of what historian Charles Reagan Wilson called the religion of the lost cause, in which Confederates consoled themselves with the story that just as Jesus had been crucified and raised, they too were martyrs in a righteous cause that would rise again. In this sense, Trump stands in a long line of culture warriors. He too is as American as apple pie. What is different are the objects of attack. Instead of Japanese Americans or Catholics or Mormons, it is Mexican criminals and Islam, the religion of war, and of course, African Americans. As Bob Orsi reminded me recently, one job of intellectuals, according to Hannah Arendt, is to define what is new in any given historical situation. So let me offer three possibilities. Number one, the reluctant education of white liberals. This semester at Boston University, I'm teaching a seminar on religion and politics in the United States. Just before uh, the election, we read T.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and Professor Eddie Glaudy's Democracy in America. I thought Vance's memoir was very helpful in explaining to liberal readers the anxieties and fears of impoverished white people in Appalachian America, in demonstrating why Americans might vote for Trump for reasons other than racism and misogyny, because they are sick and tired of having their morals and their language dictated to them by people like us, because Democrats have abandoned the working class, because their sister lost her factory job three years ago and just died of a heroin overdose. But it was Glaudy's book that really hit home for me. I know that the United States was built on white supremacy and slavery. I know that the United States is not, as the Pledge of Allegiance claims, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I know that the Star Spangled Banner, as Colin Kaepernick reminds us, ends with a lie. I know that Lincoln's radical reimagining of America's founding in the Gettysburg Address his creative misreading of the Declaration of Independence and his effort to fix the founding at the signing of that supposedly egalitarian document rather than upon the slaveholding compromises of the Constitution to pretend that the United States was conceived in liberty and dedicated from the start to the equality proposition was more hope than reality. But since I was a boy, I have wanted to stand with Martin Luther King and other hopers I have wanted to believe that the arc of history can be bent toward justice if only we are willing to do the work. 
As I watched the election results with Professor Glaudy's book literally in sight, I started to question all that. I felt like one of those white Saturday Night Live characters being laughed at with good reason by Chris Rock and David Chappelle. As Clinton fell behind in the Rust Belt, I thought of the hardest hitting line, for me at least, in Democracy in Black. We've built the country true. It's not like we keep deviating from its design, like we are forever perfecting our imperfect union by calling ourselves back to our pristine ideals, Glaudy reminds us. The line from slavery to reconstruction to lynching to segregation to Nixon's Southern strategy, to mass incarceration, to Obama nullification, to Trump, Glaudy observes, is far straighter than white liberals like myself would like to imagine. So that is the first new thing, the reluctant awakening, perhaps, of white liberals to the history and depth and danger of white nationalism. New thing number two, a strong man who follows from behind. Last month, I went to a conference in Venice on the rise of strong men, alt-right populists, and ethnic and religious nationalists in India, Turkey, Western Europe, and the United States. The scholars there were fearful that hardening ethnic and religious identities were threatening such long-standing democratic values as freedom of the press respect for the rule of law and religious pluralism. It was in short an old-fashioned freakout among progressive intellectuals who had already suffered through their own elections of Trump-like figures and were now living with Erdogan's arrests of journalists in Turkey and Modi's attempts to turn India into a Hindu nation in which Muslims can be killed with impunity merely for eating beef. When I spoke, I naively told my colleagues that the United States was different. I looked at the polls and I concluded that my fellow Americans would not elect their own Berlusconi. Obviously, I was wrong. Today, the United States is part of a global pandemic of majoritarian anti-politics that threatens to undo long-standing global commitments to religious pluralism and the rights of ethnic and racial minorities. In that sense, Trumpism requires a global rather than a merely national lens. Before November 8, many European and Asian nations, wrestling with their own flirtations with the liberal democracy, looked to the United States as a beacon of democratic values. Now when people look across the oceans to what President Reagan described as a shining city upon a hill, what they see is a dark and unexceptional America getting in line behind the vulgarities of Duterte in the Philippines and the naked aggression of Putin. So much for American exceptionalism. One last new thing, the rise of the Protestant id. For all of my lifetime, to be conservative meant to be Confucian in the sense of standing up for what Confucians call Li, defending propriety and etiquette as the social glue that holds together a civilization. The Trumpist attack on political correctness is a solvent of that glue. 
It is permission to say whatever you think, whenever you think it, to grab whatever you feel like grabbing. It transforms Trump's impulsiveness into a social good. As Freud understood, civilization requires sacrifices of the id. According to his theory of religion, religion arises as a compensation for these very sacrifices. But the authenticity so prized by Holden Caulfield and according to the work of my colleague Adam Seligman by Protestantism itself was one huge factor that propelled Trump to victory. My wife, Mira Subramanian, wrote a book last year about the environmental crisis in India. It's called A River Runs Again and you should all run out to buy it. <laughs> but I should warn you, it is a depressing read. It looks with fierce attention at the depredations that have been visited on air, water, and earth in India. It describes vultures falling dead from trees, watersheds drying up, choking smog over Delhi, farmers committing suicide as they fall deeper and deeper into debt to Monsanto. But as Mira traveled around India, she found hope in the lived politics of ordinary Indians people building check dams to hold the monsoon rains just long enough so that they could trickle down into aquifers and make their lands arable again. Scientists trying to bring vultures back from the brink of extinction. The call at the end of the book is for eco-swaraj, ecological self-rule, and for the small rather than the big. Instead of imitating America's supersized culture, of Hoover dams and combine tractors. Why not smaller, more local Indian solutions instead? In the end, Mira reflects on hope. She traveled the country asking people if they had hope, but in the end she realized she had been asking the wrong question. I was using hope as a noun when I should have been using it as a verb, she writes. He hopes for a vulture's survival as he lets it loose from his hands into the wild. She hopes for a future she begins to imagine on a cloudy afternoon in a one-room schoolhouse in Bihar. So that is where I am post-November 8. Make no mistake, we are in the midst, and maybe not even to the middle yet, of a culture war targeting Muslims as an enemy within. These Trump times are a new era of threats of registries of Muslims and of the normalization of sexual violence and of attacks on immigrants and of casual references to FDR's rounding up and interning Japanese Americans, including almost every Buddhist in the United States, as if 1942 is just another of those good old days to which we should return. It is a time to have less hope, perhaps, but to hope more, to work, as Mira and Professor Glaudi both argue, on the micro as much as the macro level, for the sorts of political change that might be close at hand, efforts on behalf of freedom of speech and against sexual assault on our campuses, against hatred of Muslims and Mexicans and Jews in our hometowns, for truth rather than truthiness, another new and dangerous thing, number four, also to speak when possible to publics beyond ourselves and our students, to refuse to play the role assigned to us 
by Trump and his surrogates and to craft our own public images of ourselves and of the imperative work still being done in our increasingly threatened colleges and universities. Thank you again for inviting me today and to all of you for coming. I look forward to the conversation. It's great to see so many friends uh, here and around this place. But you know, it's shown us again how hard it is to answer this question we ask each other. So how, how are you? <laughs> right now it's hard to answer that question without getting into a deep, deep conversation. Let me offer a frame for where we are. The frame is this, faith, resistance, and healing. In my tradition, that'd be an altar call. <laughs> Faith, resistance, and healing. Now, given where we are politically, it's true that in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, fewer voters decided this election than the number of people who can fit into the University of Michigan football stadium. And it was close, but you know what? If this hadn't happened, it might have put us all back to sleep about what's really going on in this country, as Kelly pointed out to us. Faith, resistance, and hope. When Robbie, in his wonderful work, pointed out how it's the end of white Christian America coming. We want to hope this was a last gasp, perhaps a death knell, but this could even be an attempt at restoration. And that's what we have to really confront. Um, faith leaders shouldn't predict elections, so I never did. But my team will tell you that when Donald Trump announced he was running and the way he announced it, I said to my team that I thought he'd win the Republican nomination and run 50-50 in the election, an election that almost anything you couldn't predict or control could change. So let's remember what America's original sin was. It wasn't slavery. There were other slaveries where Greek slaves tutored Roman elite children. It was a decision made by Christians. Let's put our hands up here. Christians who said, you can't do what we're doing to indigenous people and kidnapped Africans. You can't do that to people who are made in the image of God. You can't do that. So we will say they're not made in the image of God. We'll say they're less than human. We'll dehumanize them. We will throw away Imago Dei. And that's what we did and continue to do. And Kelly was right about what that meant to a new kind of person we created called white people. 
The Europeans who came here were all kinds of ethnicities, but when they came here, they all became white people. And as Robbie pointed out, this election was astonishingly a racial divide, but let's put it this way. White identity replaced faith identity for the majority of white Christians from all of our traditions. So the pastoral task ahead and the prophetic task is to replace white identity with faith identity. White identity, white supremacy, we know was an ideology, is an ideology, it is a, it is a um, system, it is a mythology, it's living a lie, but it's also an idol. So white Christianity, even that phrase, is an idolatry. And what do idols do? The Bible says idols separate us from God. So I would suggest that whiteness, the myth, the lie, the idol of whiteness separates white Christians from God. So this ministry we have is to help white Christians get their souls back from the idolatry of whiteness. Jim Cohn put it well a long time ago for white Christians, repentance means dying to whiteness, dying to whiteness. So we have, we have a situation that was on the edge and still is because the most political, important political fact in America is that in about two or three decades we are no longer a white majority nation. That's underneath everything in our politics. It shapes everything, but we don't talk about it as the most important fact. So Donald Trump, I'm not sure, <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure Donald Trump, who says he's the least racist person in the world, I'm not sure if Donald Trump has the personal conviction to be a racist. <laughs> uh, he's the marketer. He just saw it was possible. And he's done what he has done. So he has run on bigotry, uh, idolatry, racial bigotry, misogyny, and religious bigotry. He's run on it. He's taken what was always implicit and made it explicit. What was overt and made it covert. He's given permission so that now, this morning, there were 700 incidents now reported by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, people like, I'm an adopted father of a native woman in Minnesota who won her house seat, uh, but she's getting hateful email toward her, her three-year-old daughter, and husband. We should have taken care of you Indians when we had a chance. All that's being given permission to now across the country, and the appointments we've seen now send a clear signal of who America will be great again for and who it won't be great again for. So I think we have to identify the mythology, the sin, the idolatry of white Christianity uh, as a faith issue, and then we have to, I think, engage
I'm going to suggest 10 commitments of resistance in the Trump era. Very simply and very briefly, faith is at the heart of it, so we have to go deeper in our faith because all these things will be costly for us and risky. And in fact, replacing white identity with faith identity is a monumental pastoral task. Two, we have to lift up the truth. This morning they said that Donald Trump, his statements were 50% lies. Um, so it was brazen lying. But when you're the president, you've seen the media and politics normalize a president. Power wins. Questions are pushed aside. Brazen lying could be the official redefinition of what truth is. And that's where academics could be so helpful in, in fact, turning around the fear replacing facts with facts replacing fear. Three, we, were, we have to reject white nationalism, which has now become mainstream in our political life. Uh, four, we have to love our neighbors by surrounding and protecting them from hate speech and attacks. Five, we have to welcome the stranger. Now, that may well mean, and we have the capacity for this, uh, to welcome undocumented people into our congregations, faith-based organizations, and we're already creating strategies for this, so that when the mayor of Minneapolis says she won't collaborate with rounding up immigrants in her city, and Santa Fe mayor says the same, uh, that we in our cities all over the country, in the end, do the accompaniment, advocacy, and inviting people in when necessary to force ICE and Donald Trump to arrest undocumented people in our churches and not alone in their homes at night. Six, policing. Uh, as you all know, um, the clear identification of white privilege right now is people who aren't afraid of their kids leaving the house and those who are. And in every university I'm going to now, uh, black scholars, activists, young activists, old civil rights leaders, the whole response to what's happening is, I am afraid for my child and grandchildren. So white police will take heart from this administration and will go after young men and women of color. So when there's no accountability from Washington, which there will not be, this is where our councils of clergy, ecumenical interfaith, go to see every sheriff, every police chief in all of our cities and towns and say, we will provide the accountability that politics no longer does. So look at who we are. We're meeting you, you're meeting us. We'll give you things to study and read, 
how to implement, for example, the 21st Century uh, Policing Commission that, uh, the, that President Obama did, Brian Stevenson, others wrote it, Brittany Packnett. But we're going to say we're going to watch you, we're going to film you, we're going to be in the streets if you indeed break the law in relationship to young men and women of color. Seven, we'll defend religious liberty. Um, we'll not just defy the defamation and banning of Muslims, as my brother Steve said, but when, and they're talking this weekend about registering Muslims, and they're talking about the Japanese internment camps this weekend as a precedent. So if and when they begin to register Muslims, we as Christians and Jews should be the first in line for those re registrations. Eight, we'll have to work to end the misogyny that enables rape culture. That's what we're talking about here. Nine, we'll protest with our best values. Uh, and if the Constitution or democratic processes are violated by this administration, Steve Schmidt said, the Republican um, commentator said, fascism rose in the 30s, not because it was strong, but because democracy was weak. Our democracy had a very weak place. Abraham Lincoln talked about the need to evoke our better angels. Donald Trump evoked our worst demons. Better angels, worst demons. We were right on the edge. We are right on the edge. And so we must be those who will stand up and speak when, in fact, we need to when events occur. 10, we'll listen. The nation is more divided and polarized than most of us can remember in our lifetimes. 72% of white Christians, 72% believe that the shootings of young men and women of color were incidents. 72%, 82% of black Christians say they're part of a pattern, part of our lives. 75% of white people in America, 75% have no significant relationship of color, person or family in their social circle. The racial geography of our country is not accidental, it's by policy. So where are the places, the safe and sacred places, where people can listen to each other again, where moms and dads can share their hopes and fears uh, and dreams for their children? Where are the places that we can listen to each other? So, resistance, faith, and healing. So we want to take at our place these commitments seriously and not just rhetorically, but practically. So it's a time for us to remember again, not just what we believe, but what we're willing to do because of the things that we believe. Thank you. Thank each of you for really powerful presentations. 
Um, since I didn't get to introduce her earlier, I'm now going to introduce the respondent, who is Andrea White, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Union Theological Seminary. She works in constructive Christian theology, womanist theology, and postmodern religious thought. She is a recipient of the Lilly Theological Research Faculty Fellowship from the Association of Theological Schools and the Louisville Institute Book Grant for Minority Scholars, both awarded for research that culminates in her forthcoming volume, The Scandal of Flesh, Black Women's Bodies and God's Politics. She's also author of a forthcoming volume, The Back of God, a theology of otherness in Karl Barth and Paul Ricoeur. And she is the editor of forthcoming volume, Feminist and Womanist Theologies from Fortress Press. She is executive director of the Society for the Study of Black Religion, and she is co-chair of the Black Theology Group of the American Academy of Religion. She serves on the Committee on the Status of Racial and Ethnic Minorities in the Profession, and she is on the steering committee for the Theology and Religious Reflection section. She serves on the editorial board of JAR and uh, Teaching Theology and Religion, an international journal of the Wabash Center on Teaching and Learning. She is a founding member of the Carter Center's Scholars in Action, and she has worked on International Human Rights Defenders Forum on questions of faith and the advancement of women's human rights. She's ordained as an American Baptist minister. She received her doctorate from the University of Chicago Divinity School, her MDiv from Yale Divinity School, and her bachelor's from Oberlin College. So Andrea, thank you for all the work you're doing and thank you for being our respondent today. Thank you, Serene, and to our panelists. Give me a second here. Document has disappeared on me. <laughs> okay. Well, many thanks to each of you for your remarks. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of a national event, we're quite inclined to engage in analysis, and sometimes we are even inclined to see the event as an occasion that invites prophetic proclamation, and I think we got that here today. I want to note a an observation uh, that I find curious about our analysis and our prophetic analysis of the election, and it has to do with claims about predictability of the outcome over and against claims about its startling nature. And I've noticed that the, the positioning on this issue is often racialized. Just in my own experience, I have anecdotal, uh, scientific anecdotal evidence uh, of um, black folks saying we knew this was gonna happen, this, this is not a surprise, this is absolutely predictable. And, uh, and then other folks uh, claiming that this is a, a complete shock and outrage. 
And what I, I think that our speakers here today have, um, have noted in common is this question of how and why. And the analysis that we've done to trace the genealogical uh, outcome of this event. So we began with uh, Robbie Jones' remarks, and he talked about the surprise of the election actually being no surprise, that the demographic picture in the ballot box are meant to explain uh, some element of surprise, but we've in fact had an overrepresentation of white evangelicals at the ballot box, but this density of white Christians in each state is highly correlated with the states that Trump won. The tendency is to overinterpret these voting patterns. There has been no sea change. The divide in the religious landscape is white evangelicals and everyone else. And are these newcomers thought of as a strength or a threat? The election is a referendum on white nostalgia. So again, the question of predictability and the outrage uh, and of our surprise. Kelly Brown Douglas asked, how did it happen? Trump's uh, tapping into those feelings betrayed of those who uh, are feeling betrayed by the political establishment. The birth of American whiteness with the birth came with the birth of America. It's a passport for American identity. There's the myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism that is in the DNA of the American narrative. Who has the right to be president is the question. The outcome of the election is American and therefore predictable that whiteness would stand its ground after a black man in the White House. We can connect the dots from slavery to Trayvon Martin to Barack Obama to Trump as a response. Trump played into the whiteness narrative and the narrative makes the fascism narrative plausible and possible. There's a playbook for Trump that relies on the narrative of national decline and the question that Kelly Brown Douglas asks us is now what? How do we free ourselves from the myth of America? It requires calling out and resistance to racism and xenophobia. Xenophobia, it's a call for the faith community to take the lead. It's a call to a halt of the crucifying realities for people of color and that faith communities must free themselves from whiteness. Trump has unmasked a disturbing truth about America, and this is uh, where I call on a title I read in an, an op-ed piece, The Big Reveal. This is The Big Reveal. It's a revelatory moment about a truth that we've been living with all along. The surprise is no surprise. Professor Prothero talked about the new things in an age of Trump, how frightening that we're only two weeks in and we're already calling it the age of Trump. It's the new and dangerous things, the culture wars and the incorrect claim of a post-culture war America, except that culture wars are ubiquitous throughout history and they always are about inclusion. It's the question of who belongs. Trump is a quintessential 
culture war hero. The culture wars win elections and they are grounded in anxiety and anxiety moves to outrage. Trump stands in a long line of culture wars. The Star Spangled Banner ends in a lie and we pretend that the US was conceived in liberty. But he wants to hope with King in the Ark of Justice, but we have not strayed from the design, the design flaw that pretended that we were built in liberty. So it's a reluctant awakening of white liberals to white nationalism, and it's the rise of the Protestant id. The transformation of Trump's uh, impulsiveness has turned into a social good, but these Trump times are a new era where hope no longer needs to be a noun but a verb. This is a time to have less hope but to hope more. And then we have the remarks from Jim Wallace and the election to predict or not to predict. He says, we, will, we have thrown away the Imago Dei. We have created a new kind of people, a white people. White identity is replaced by faith identity. White supremacy is an idolatry because idols separate us from God. These, uh, the rise of the incidents of hate crime call us to see who this so-called greatness will serve. So he gives us 10 commitments of resistance. We need to look deeper in our faith identity, lift up the truth when the lies are normalized and made official. Uh, academics can be helpful here. This is a call to us and also to love our neighbors, welcome the stranger, clergy are offered to provide accountability to police, and uh, we must uh, live in a time, in this time with a response of resistance, faith, and healing. These are the commitments. I want to um, end by giving the final word to Hannah Arendt. She wrote an article in the New, York, in the New Yorker magazine in 1967 entitled, truth and politics. She says, no one has ever doubted that truth and politics are on rather bad terms with each other. And no one, as far as I know, has ever counted truthfulness among the political virtues. Lies have always been regarded as necessary and justifiable tools, not only of the politicians or the demagogues, but also of the statement's trade. Is not impotent truth just as despicable as power that gives no heed to truth? These are uncomfortable questions, but they arise necessarily out of our current convictions in this matter. Still quoting Arendt, she says, we remain unaware of the actual content of political life, of the joy and the gratification that arise out of being in company with our peers, out of acting together and appearing in public, out of inserting ourselves into the world by word and deed, thus acquiring and sustaining our personal identity and beginning something entirely new. So I would like to do uh, follow the calling of my fellow panelists and 
hope, uh, put, give hope the last word, a calling for something new, to retell the American story, to resist the DNA uh, narrative of American exceptionalism uh, with faith and healing and resistance. Thank you. So we have about half an hour left um, for conversations and questions, and I want to take the prerogative as the convener to uh, just throw out three questions for reflection and open it up. Um, anyone, feel free to engage these, um, and we will have more from the audience. If you have a question, I ask that you stand up and wave your hands because this room doesn't, does not allow us to see you very well. So, so let yeah. Yeah, go, go. If you go to the if you go to the microphone, then we'll see you. So, so a couple of questions. Um, I don't buy for a minute the argument that um, um, large numbers of white working class Americans voted for Trump not because they were racist, but because they felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. I have no doubt they felt abandoned by the Democratic Party, but to claim it's not racist, I think, is a lie. But it does get at this um, reality of unconscious bias when it comes to people's understanding of themselves as white people who are racist. Um, and so how we begin to think theologically and politically about addressing unconscious bias in all these areas. And the second question I have is, Robbie, it's so hopeful for you to say 2050 um, inevitably will have a, a different racial demographic in the United States. And yet, Steve, you tied to your comments this description of what's happening globally um, around the world in terms of this move to tyranny, this move to fascism, this rise of populism, and the kinds of liberties it takes. And so talk about why we should assume that, that when America becomes more racially diverse, it will automatically not follow the trend of these countries in which there is, in fact, oftentimes levels of racial diversity that configure around different politics. Um, and then thirdly, this question of religious freedom, Jim, you raised it. And we know that in the last uh, five years, religious freedom has been used as a weapon against LGBTQ issues to say that religious freedom requires people not to respect the rights of those people who are different from them. So then how do we, in this context, invoke religious freedom on the side of protection of Muslims um, as if we're, we're talking about two very different things, but we need to unpack that kind of distinction. So there's my three questions. We have someone at the mic. Do you all want to take a response to any of those? Just, just on a couple of those. It's, you know, the media is always interesting. Uh, G. McCarthy said it's like a bird goes to one wire and begins chirping, and then they all fly to the wire and they all chirp the same thing. So they're chirping. We elites miss these forgotten white working class rural voters. Now we're going to talk about them all the time. And so there's this whole bias now in the media toward talking about white working class, white rural voters. Uh, and I've never seen the media talk about uh, forgotten, neglected, left behind, abandoned, whole swaths of black and brown voters the way they're talking about white voters. So there's an unconscious bias e even there mm -hmm. in the way, the way the media is cover covering. I, I come from that kind of Detroit working class background. 
and the, the kids of the people who had the jobs in Detroit, lifetime jobs without college, are now mad. But the racism in the culture in my little church that kicked me out as a 15-year-old is still there. And so you're right to talk about that. I said to a group yesterday, let us not allow religious freedom to be defined as who faith-based organizations are allowed to hire or not, which is that's how it's being defined by a whole lot of people. Instead, as, uh, as, as, as my brother ta talked about, when they, I think it's now probably a matter of when, when they register or act against Muslims, uh, the best response is for Christians and Jews to be right there in line. And I'm, see, I want to hear, the main thing I want to say is what we think about this is critical, but what we do about it is really important now. We have the capacity in our churches, in our faith communities, we have the capacity to seriously block and obstruct and interfere with mass deportation. We could really push back on this because I want Robbie's uh, dates to be right too, that someday we'll see better results, but the damage that is gonna be done in, in the meantime is enormous. So we have the capacity to really block and obstruct any mass deportation policy. We have the capacity to really reveal and confront racial profiling in police departments, but not unless every sheriff in every town knows who we are and that we're open to dialogue because there are different kind of cops in different kinds of places. So let's bring out what's happening, but th the resistance now has gotta be very clear, and I think we have the capacity to disrupt a lot of what's going on but that's gonna take real mobilization. And these 10 commitments we put up yesterday uh, at sojo.net, we're getting an enormous response. People saying, how do we do that? So we're gonna do a toolkit for every single one and point people to the faith-based organizations or others who are doing the work, who are talking about how to accompany, do the legal stuff, how, how to really bring people in. So there'll be a toolkit for all these things because if we don't respond with doing things, putting our capacities in the place in front of these policies, then we're just gonna be doing analysis while people just suffer unbelievably. Kelly? Oh, it's coming from both. I just wanna echo in a way uh, in which what Jim just said and add to it that first, when he, we talk about we have the capacity to disrupt and we do, for me, it comes down to not simply having the capacity, but we have a mandate right. to disrupt. Because here's one of the most, there are many frightening things of, of what's been unleashed, but one of the most frightening things is that people of color, minorities could always rely on, always in quotes, but could rely, had federal recourse. But now there's no federal recourse. Right? And so th what that sets up, now time is ripe for a movement. And it's gonna have to be a movement. It's going to have to be grassroots resistance when we no longer have the DOJ. And so it seems to me that not simply do we have the capacity, there is a necessity. Otherwise, it seems to me that we will be set back generations uh, in terms of the le now legalizing, uh, again, 
uh, in many ways, legalizing discrimination, et cetera, et cetera, uh, legalizing hate crimes. My other thing is we can't let the media off the hook. And it seemed to me that one of the things that the media did was they normalized Trump. And Trump was not a typical candidate. And nobody called that out. They treated Trump, this is not about Republican or Democrat. And, and so it's, a, it's, it's about what we're, this kind of white chauvinism. And the media treated Trump as if he was the same as a, as a Hillary. They normalized Trump. And so in many respects, the media, I always say, there are new scientific races, right? Because they implant deep within the collective consciousness a truth that is not true. And no one caught out the media. And so I think that the media has to be held accountable and that we have to call out the media and that one of the things on that list of things to do is we really have to begin to hold the media accountable because the media creates a myth of truth. And they certainly did that in relationship to Trump. And Robbie? Should I add one, one yeah. One quick comment on this. I do think one danger here is uh, particularly a blind spot for progressives who are uh, like analyzing this is to make this all about class, right? It's all about economics and class. Um, and that's a particular blind spot I think that progressive analysts are, are prone to. But man, you miss what happened here um, if that's really your own. And, you know, even, even in the data we can see uh, that, that white Christian identity more strongly predicts, right, uh, uh, that than, than, than class, uh, than white class, uh, white social class does. Um, so I think that's a huge deal. And I just want to echo uh, what Kelly said about this like, Anglo-Saxon, and the other word tack onto that is Protestant, right? right? It's right, Anglo-Saxon right. Protestant that's right. identity that's right. uh, that has, right. and we got to own that, I think, that it has always been about race and Protestant identity right. um, in the country. Uh, and that is exactly what's being threatened now. And I think, the, uh, Steve, I really appreciate your like, what's new, and that's the task of, uh, of academics. And I do think one thing that's new that I've tried to shine a spotlight on is, you know, the, um, there's always been a kind of apocalyptic rhetoric, I think, among conservative white Christians in the country. But um, what, the, what, what is new now is that they actually have slipped into the minority, right? Uh, they ha actually have slipped from being the majority demographic in the country, and I think that adds genuinely new fuel to the fire. So it's one thing to sort of, uh, you know, talk about threat and external threat when you when you know you're kind of in the majority. It's another thing uh, that that takes on a whole new valence when you actually know uh, your place in, in in the center is slipping. Just very quick, because uh, I want to I want to hear. Um, questions, but uh, on the global and local thing, I think there is a danger of analyzing this purely in American terms. Mm -hmm. So there's an American story and it starts with the Puritans or it starts with the Anglo-Saxons coming here. Um, and I think that it's undeniable that we have a pattern, right? I mean, no one said Brexit today, but Brexit is part of this. Right after Brexit, people were saying, oh gosh, are Americans going to elect Trump? It seems like that's the same thing that would motivate. Um, and what's that about? I mean. That is also about whiteness in, in uh, the UK, for sure. But um, what seems common globally is uh, the, new, in the new economy, which is uh, in which uh, goods and services are much more mobile, which is much more about uh, you know, uh, moving factories overseas, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. And uh, that's creating huge di uh, dislocation. The other thing is the mass migration of human populations that's been enabled by new, new technologies. And so we have 
these are these are two facts. These are um, these are demographic facts, and they are um, economic facts, and um, that's part of it. So uh, I certainly don't mean to be in the, the the camp that's saying that this isn't about racism. I think it is about racism, but I think among my friends, at least the. The danger is to to say it's only about that. I, you know, one thing that I'm arguing is, is this is multi-causal, and that it's important to take into account class, and it's important to take into account the global story, and it's important to take into account the American story, and uh, and that part of what makes this this global movement powerful toward these very dangerous strongmen who are uninterested in minority rights and are are interested in the assertion of religious and uh, ethnic and racial ma majority power. Um, is that it is in fact global, and it can't be understood per, uh, purely in a U.S. Uh, nation-state lens. So we have a line at the, I can't see the, okay, first one over here. At this point, my question is a little redundant, but I'll still raise it. Um, it was for Robbie and Stephen. Because on the one hand, I really appreciated how, Robbie, you raised the point about it being uh, white evangelical Christianity that um, that electorate put Trump in office versus class, um, that these were the white working class that really propelled his victory. But on the other hand, Stephen had kind of raised it in using J.D. Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is really more about the white working class. Um, so again, if you could still kind of talk a little bit about the contrast um, in those narratives, you know, which is it and, or how do they interact and I still think including race in that conversation is important. We're going to take one at a time or two? Which I mean, I'll just let's say. Take, let's take a couple of questions. Okay, and yeah. And we can have random, um, you all can respond if you want. So let's go over here. Next question. Uh, it's working. Hi. Uh, Dan Rober, Sacred Heart University. Uh, my question is about um, another word besides Brexit that didn't come up today, which was. Uh, secularization um, and uh, Robbie I read your book and I, I know you talk about that at greater length there um, but I'm cause there's been narratives in the media about secularization so there's the one narrative that Ross Douthat and some others had of Trump as secular figure right as here's an example of a secular figure but we've also of course had narratives you know here at the AAR and other places of America as increasingly secular looking more and more like Europe and all this. And this was often seen as sort of an aid or um, result of various kinds of progressive causes. So you can see the same correlation with acceptance of gay marriage uh, to secularization as we saw with the demographics. Can so, you make sure this is a question? Yes, it's sorry. the question part. Sorry. The, all of this is a prelude to what is the relationship, how, how does this result change the way we look at the narrative of secularization vis-a-vis -vis white Christian America? Okay, let's take one more question over here, and then we'll go to all three of them. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm Mexican, and I live in one of the most religious cities in, in the States, Michigan. And uh, our community is we don't need to wait to give a chance to see how the Trump government will be because the Hispanic community is already suffering the violence from many, and I'm speaking of Christian circles, schools, 
churches in which we experience from verbal, very vicious verbal uh, violence, even to beating small kids in elementary schools. And nobody does anything in our midst, in, in our space. They just say, well, those are isolated incidents, but, uh, or even some people say they are just liberal inventions, but we suffer every day those inventions. And our kids, uh, you can't imagine what it is for them to go to school every day so afraid, for our people to go to the factories where they labor at a slave wage, because they are undocumented, most of them. And uh, we feel in many ways abandoned by our own white, privileged Christian brothers and sisters. Thank so you. Do, you. do you have a question? Um, Just to, to... to tell you that this is another part of what, uh, aside from the statistics and great ideas we need to put into the picture, the reality of something that is already going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So we have three questions, uh, race and class, how we think about those. Um, we have the question here about secularism, and we have a powerful witness to the Latinx reality um, that has been going on for a long time and the role that just the, the sheer force of suffering already in place plays in our thinking about the present moment. The, uh, the race class question is really critical for us to deal with, I think, because because of trade, because of microchips, because of globalization, because of lots of things, uh, there was, there has been a displacement of a lot of people from where I'm from. But what Trump did is he turned economic resentment into racial resentment. He racialized that movement. And that's what exploded it. Exploded because he racialized it. And we know, scholars here know, there are two kinds of populism in this country. And the one that really tries to lift up uh, people who are on the bottom, working class people in North Carolina after slavery, the Fusion Party was, was white former non-slave owners with, with slaves and they transformed the whole state. That's why Reconstruction came in to change that. But the other kind of populism is the blaming is the black president, is the birth certificate conspiracy, is, is he, he began his career with, with a racist birther movement and he began his campaign with attacking Mexicans and, and immigrants, so he racialized it. So I think you can't talk about the class issue and the white media, I think, is denying the race of this election. Time and time again, the white media, they not only uh, normalized Trump, uh, politics is normalizing Trump. The Never Trump movement now is normalizing Trump. So the normalizing go, goes on, and they go back to, I, I, I don't want to go too far here, but it's almost like there's a group of left-out white people who are almost saying, I want my white privilege back. You know, so, so the media is participating in that. So if we don't have, and for us, the race-class connection is very clear, and there's a future of what we see in North Carolina uh, that's before us now, but we can't deny 
what some of those white people feel. We have to see how it's being racialized. So, and as, as Kelly said, it is a mandate. For me, it's an altar call, if, if you will, to have that conversation with those people, have safe spaces for people to talk to each other. That's what's not happening. Our racial geography prevents conversation. So white working class people, uh, a lot of them go to church, and, and, and people of color go, go to church, and they're not talking to each other. So how can we have that conversation, which is not just hearing each other's stories, but talking about a future together? That would be the kind of uh, faith movement, as Kelly's speaking of, that would be like the kind of populism we've had before that is a positive one. Other responses to these series of questions? Just real quickly, I mean, it's important to remember um, white working class people and white Christian people are not different people, right? 70% um, of white working class Americans are white Christians. Um, so that, it's a very conflated group. I mean, there's not, they're not all the same, but it's 70% are white Christians. Um, so I think that's really important to remember. And so these things interact and they, 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 um, they feed each other. And so I think that's why, Evan with Steve, I think it's right. You know, we've got to have both and. I mean, we, you know, I think the, the recession, the slowness that the Rust Belt has been to recover from this recession compared to the bigger cities. We've seen the biggest urban-rural divide in this election than we've seen um, in previous elections. That's part of that um, as well. So I think it's important to kind of, yeah, hold both of these things together. I, I just have a brief political, political comment, which is that um, what's the future coalition for the Democratic Party? I mean, is, is the future coalition excluding white working class people? Because I don't think that's a very bright future. Um, and so I think that that's one of the major problems uh, of the Democratic Party in my adult lifetime is that they largely abandon working class people of, of all colors. And how do you expect to, you know, I mean, yes, you know, they're, they're, the Democratic Party is winning a lot of African-American votes and a lot of Hispanic votes, but, but um, you know, that's where I think the Hillbilly Elegy, you know, book is important, that it reminds us that there are, there are people in the United States who are hurting, who are, you know, committing suicide, who are also white people, you know, and they don't have jobs that they used to have, and the Democratic Party used to be a champion of labor unions. It used to be a champion of the working class, of all colors, and um, and they've stopped doing that. And uh, you know, one of the people who stopped doing that was Bill Clinton. You know, and so this is not unrelated to the outcome of the election. And and, and if you want to think about you know a future coalition that's going to beat Donald Trump in four years, and if you know all of us in this room just want to not worry about working class people. I don't think that's a very bright future for, it's a bright future for Trump, but it's not a bright future for, for other parties. So let's take some more questions here. Um, all right, thanks so much for your panel. I'm Leah Surratt from Arizona State University. And um, my question is about teaching. Many of us in this room are educators, and as professors or teachers, we're required to be nonpartisan in the classroom. And I've been struggling a lot with this, and I wonder how do we create in our classrooms spaces where we resist the normalization of white supremacy and the normalization of Trump? without alienating our students who may have supported him? Or is that possible, or do we have a moral imperative right now to support our students that might be hurting the most and most afraid? Can I just answer this real quick? Yeah. Because this is a real quick answer. 
it's not about the answers you give, it's about the questions you force them to ask. Mm -hmm. And so, uh -huh. and, and so uh -huh. that's what you do. Okay, great. Uh -huh. Okay, let's go over here. My question was also related to the classrooms, the religious educations. Um, among the um, under among the those communities who are impacted by the election last Tuesday are Asian and Asian American communities, but they're also st still underrepresented in the media and also this room today. Um, to briefly share my story, I came here to America to educate myself 10 years ago on a student visa. And a lot of my friends and colleagues are still worried about um, what's gonna happen after we graduate. Because the, currently we're um, working on H, HB1. All, they need to, all you need to know about that is that it's a temporary working permit, but they might easily disappear. So um, they're also impacted by these uh, Trump's anti-immigration rhetoric. And um, if you are um, teaching classrooms filled with different um, groups of representing um, different kinds of oppressions, um, how would you address that? And let's take the last, both of the last two questions and then we'll come at all four of them. Go ahead. Hi, thank you all so much. Um, I appreciate all of the commentary on race and class, and there's absolutely no doubt that those both played a large role in this election, so I've appreciated all of your commentary on that. What I've found lacking largely in um, publications I've been reading and the coverage in the media, and then also on this panel to some extent, is commentary on the role that misogyny, sexism, um, and gender played in this election cycle. And then also, um, you know, of course, this is a big deal with, Supre with the Supreme Court mm -hmm. appointments and all of that. So I wonder if the panel could say something about um, the role that you think that that played in the election, if any. Of course, the vote was split between men and women, so it's not reflected in those statistics. But nonetheless, I think misogyny cuts across um, gender lines. So I would just appreciate some sort of commentary on that and you think the implications going forward. Well, my question builds on um, her question. So um, I've spent the last 10 or so years doing ethnography with families who use focus on the family, um, child rearing material, so conservative Christians that fit all these demographics. Um, and for them, what I've seen in an unspoken way is that Christianity, American exceptionalism, and sexism are of a piece. Mm. So I wanted you to speak a little bit more to that. Um, as well, and I had another piece of that that I can't remember now, but if you could speak to the way that those function together, that would be great, thanks. So we now have about um, five minutes left, so we may go a little bit over, but um, these are very important for last questions. So we have a question about teaching. Um, we have a question um, about Asian and Asian American identity and the vulnerability of people who are here on visas. Um, we have a question about misogyny, and we have a question that ties misogyny into American exceptionalism. So um, if you all can Do that. answer all those questions quickly. <laughs> and and, and um, The quick response is to affirm the interlocking realities of uh, hetero white heteropatriarchy, mm -hmm. and that's what we're talking about. And these systems function, they don't function separately, they function in a connected way. Mm 
And so race and gender create class realities. Uh, uh, and so they function together to pro protect the same thing. And so, so I think you're right. The uh, other thing, so I'm just saying this very quickly because we've got like now four minutes uh, or less. Uh, the role of misogyny in this election, clearly, I mean, when we look at the narratives created against Hillary and the people who would not vote for her in the, we're talking about 13% of African-American males, we're talking about Latino males, so that what's that all about? And so we are talking about narratives, misogynistic and sexist narratives, but we're also talking about the way whiteness trumps gender affiliation, the same way in which whiteness trumps class affiliations and, or class interests. So I should say the way whiteness trumped uh, gender interest the way whiteness Trump class interest. It reminds me of David Rodiker's The Making of Whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so that, what, 50, how many? I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna give a statistic because Robbie's the statistic man, but a whole lot of white women voted for Trump. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. And so, you know what, so I just think that we do have to unpack that, but we can't, and, and I think you're clearly right about that but in terms of misogyny and the way in which Hillary Clinton was uh, was painted in a vote she just never was going to get because she was a woman. Uh, uh, but we have to talk about, again, the way whiteness trumps these things, yeah. pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, on the thing, here's, here's the thing, like, we, we saw a bigger gender gap right after those tapes come out, came out. We, we were in the field, uh, other people in the field. Um, we were seeing, a, uh, even, even among white evangelicals, we were seeing about a 10-point gender gap uh, there. We were seeing a, like a 20-plus point among white Catholics, uh, and particularly, you know, Catholic, Catholic men and women. And you, from what all we can tell, the exit polls haven't broken it down, but what we can tell is that most of that gender gap basically went back to what it typically is. Um, it just came home at the end of the day. Uh, and it didn't stick, in other words, is, is what happened. And so we had this kind of big conversation about it, and it seemed like it was going to be a thing. And then what it ended up doing is, um, and, and in fact, I think it's one of the reasons why it created some uncertainty in the polls. People were saying to pollsters, I don't really know who I'm going to vote for. But when it came down to Election Day, they basically came home to the candidate they would have voted for anyway. Just on the question, bringing up one of your other topics here, uh, all white folks across all levels classes, genders, voted for Donald Trump. But you know, the 81% <laughs> white evangelicals, oh my goodness, coming from that tradition, I've got an op-ed going in my head about called this 81%. One thing that we did though in the campaign, we put out a, a declaration from evangelicals, 80 evangelical leaders, and it was very uh, multi-ethnic and very gender inclusive balanced, and that, that statement really showed, in fact, you do the polling and evangelicals were almost split when you include all evangelicals. So we got the media to stop saying evangelical when they meant white evangelicals. So not least to say, but there's a whole new generation and the white evangelicals are dying and shrinking, but the evangelicals of color and younger and, and, and women who are finding their voice in that world, the energy for that declaration came from multi-ethnic and women evangelicals. So even in the evangelical side, there's a whole shift going on, and those folks want to redefine evangelical, even that term. And I was in a d debate with a, a woman religious right uh, scholar with the BBC, 
And I said, and he said, what is an evangelical? The host said. I said, well, let Jesus define that from Luke 4 when he gave his opening uh, mission speech. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointing to preach good news to the poor. The word good news there is evangel, from which we get evangelical, right? And she said, you're bringing, I can't believe you're bringing Jesus into your politics. He should stay in the church, and you're bringing him into politics. And I said, exactly right. So, but in that evangelical declaration, strong leadership role by women and people of color to redefine against the white evangelicals what evangelical means. So that was a critical part. The misogyny was a critical part of that evangelical re re redefining. So that to me was a very hopeful thing. Um, so I want to just say one last word about a number of additional sessions where this will be the... Uh, primary topic of discussion, um, and there's even more than the ones I'm going to name. These are these are the largest ones. Um, this evening at four, um, the religious and racial, um, the the status of racial and ethnic minorities in the profession committee will sponsor a discussion on religious and racial identity politics in media coverage. Kelly, your point about the role of the media in the election. And, and that's going to be um, in Texas A in the Grand Hyatt. Um, tomorrow um, at from 11.45 to 12.45, Kelly Brown Douglas and Michelle Alexander um, will be talking about relationship of mass incarceration and mass deportation and their own journeys through this um, um, role that um, incarceration and um, the confining of bodies uh, plays in American politics and culture. Today we'll have a panel at 11.45 um, of scholars looking at hatred. Um, Eddie Gloud, who was sitting right here. Um, Myra Rivera, um, Amir Hussein will be talking about intersections of Islamophobia, um, 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 immigration, and mass incarceration. Cornell West will be hosting that. And then um, on Monday, if you're still here, um, there will be a special morning session that's been added to the book um, called by a number of uh, liberation theology and racial ethnic minority working groups just to discuss the question of teaching um, and the politics of this in the classroom. So look in your um, um, app for that. Um, during the lunch plenary, um, Julian Castro, former president of San Antonio, um, who's been an outspoken um, advocate on issues around immigration and against the wall, uh, will be speaking to us, um, now president of HUD, I'm mean, head of HUD, um, a short-lived appointment, um, but it, I think he's an important political figure for us to listen to. And then finally, um, William Barber will address us Monday evening at 7. Um, and if you had a chance, he spoke at the DNC and is a strong moral voice, particularly in North Carolina's struggle around all these issues. So there's lots of places for this conversation to grow and continue. I want to thank you all for being here for the first of those. And I particularly want to thank each of you on the panel and Andrea for responding for the work that you've been doing way before you got here and the work we know you'll continue to do way after this. So thank you. <laughs>